it was this realization because there were so many people that told me, what? You have breast cancer? You are one of the healthiest people I know. Right. And sometimes that was really hard to hear because you know how unhealthy there are lifestyles out there. And you, of course, you ask the question, why me? And why not that person? Right. I always wondered why my grandmother passed away at the age of 52. She was a smoker. She passed away from lung cancer. But why did my grandmother pass away from lung cancer at 52, where this person is 80 and still smoking, right? And so there's a lot of questions of unfairness and why me? And I think it's okay to ask those questions, but at the same time, not sit in them for too long. Because to me, it was this realization of like, I can't change this. This is what happened. What am I going to do next? You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 267. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, veggie lover, welcome to another episode in the fasting series. Now this series is intended to provide education about the potential health and longevity benefits of different forms of fasting, including time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, and extended water only fasting. Please be aware that in this series, we will be discussing different forms of fasting and food restriction. And in some cases, there will be references to body size and weight. This material and these methods are not appropriate for children, pregnant people, or people with certain medical conditions. Please do not attempt these practices without medical supervision, as it could be very dangerous. These concepts may also be triggering for people with disordered eating or eating disorders, so please practice discretion before listening to these episodes. Thank you, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Allison Tierney, MSRD CSO, is a board-certified oncology dietitian. PCOS and infertility warrior, cancer thriver, and all-around nutrition nerd. She empowers others to live their own wholesome life with plant-based nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Allison's approach involves recommendations strongly rooted in scientific evidence. Focused on whole food plant-forward nutrition, Allison helps patients navigate their health journey after encountering a chronic illness such as cancer, autoimmune diseases, and infertility. Another pillar of Allison's approach is focus on prevention to help others take health into their own hands. Taking whole person health into account, Allison's motto for patients is simple, eat more plants. In this episode of the fasting series on Veggie Doctor Radio, key takeaways are we can alter our habits and behaviors to reduce our risk of disease, but it is never a 100% guarantee. Don't sit too long trying to figure out why you developed a certain condition or blaming yourself for it. Instead, take action on the things you can control. Fasting before and after chemotherapy can improve the efficacy of chemotherapy and decrease the side effects. Fasting protocols during chemo will vary from person to person and should be medically supervised. Cold capping is a technique that can be used to prevent hair loss caused by chemotherapy. Nutrition can be an incredible complement to cancer therapy and can help improve side effects and quality of life during and after treatment. I hope that you enjoy this final episode in the fasting series right here on Veggie Doctor Radio. Allison Tierney, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. Well, we have a lot to talk about, but I want to start at the beginning. Tell us your plant-based journey. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah. Wow. Well, I definitely did not grow up plant-based. I grew up kind of in that, I guess you would say standard American healthy diet is the way that I like to think about it is because we didn't eat a lot of red meat or go out for a lot of fast food or anything like that. But um, so that's how I grew up. And I actually had an interest in nutrition as an athlete. So that's like kind of where it all started. But the plant-based part happened when I was in school to be a dietitian. And I always wanted to be an oncology dietitian. And so I started doing a lot more of my own research outside of school and kind of actually stumbled upon the plant-based diet. And it was really in an effort to help better serve my patients, um, which in that case were cancer patients. And I wanted to know how could we improve their outcomes? How can we help them best? And it was really through the plant-based diet that I started encouraging my patients. Now, how it really happened for me was that I was encouraging this for my patients. And I, of course, started following it a little bit more myself, being like, well, I'm encouraging this for my patients. I need to start implementing it a little bit for myself. So that's where it kind of started. But then where it really took off for me and my family was when my husband and I were trying to conceive our first child. Um, we stumbled upon um, infertility. I have polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. And we were just about to move over to more in-depth fertility treatments. And before we did that, I told my husband, you know, I really just want to try diving in 100% to this plant-based diet. And I told him, I said, I, I don't need you to do it with me, but I would like your support in the process. And I have a very supportive husband. And his answer was, of course, if you think it's going to help. And you, I know you've done your research. He knows me as a dietitian that I'm all evidence-based and want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. And um, I said, yeah, I've done my research. I want to try it and just see if it helps before we move on. And we did that. And within a few weeks, um, I got pregnant and I had, now I always tell people that I had been like weaning things off for a while, I had already re like really cut out meat. I had been reducing my dairy. So it wasn't like I just, ex you know, one day switched completely over. It was kind of a transition. But from that moment when I decided to fully transition, it was only about three or four weeks later that I ovulated for the first time in like a year and a half um, and got pregnant with our first child. And honestly, it's stuck ever since because it, I found it so helpful and it improved so many other things for me that I've never turned back. Oh my gosh, that's such a lovely story. And I got chills whenever you're talking about your husband and how supportive he was because it's infertility is such a heartbreaking, tough journey. And you know him on his side, just trying to do everything he can, whatever he can to contribute. And, and he's like, yeah, of course, if you think this is gonna help, I'm in, let's do this, you know? So I'm so glad that he was supportive and I'm so glad that it led to the end result, which is beautiful babies. So congratulations, that's amazing. Thank you, thank you Did so you much, yeah. Did you feel any different in your body? Like, were there other, other physical differences that you could tell, okay, this is the right path for me? Absolutely, um, it definitely, first and foremost, um, the first change that I noticed was because of the PCOS, I did have pretty horrific acne. Um, and this was like late into my 20s um, that I was still dealing with this. So once I went plant-based, my face cleared up significantly. Um, so that, and I had the really painful acne. So um, that was something that was huge for me. My energy definitely increased and um, my digestion improved as well. When I was in my early 20s, I had a fair amount of issues with digestion that we could just never... Um, put a pin into what it was. And ever since I changed my diet over to plant-based, I haven't had any issues from that standpoint. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I feel like those were like the first two for me too, is energy. And I was pooping, which was yeah. a big deal for somebody who yeah. had pooped regularly or well for 30 years. So yes. that always makes a huge difference in your life. And I have Absolutely. to say you have beautiful, clear skin. So it's, it's working for you. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I know that you do have quite a bit of chronic illness, chronic conditions in your family. After you made the change, has your way of eating influenced your family members, whether it's your immediate family members or extended family members, your friends? How has it touched other people? 
Yeah, it's definitely thankfully touched a lot of other people that are really close to me. And my the first and foremost that it really touched is after I went plant-based, um, I have a twin sister and my sister was diagnosed with lupus. And um, for some people that don't maybe not know aren't familiar, it's an autoimmune disease that can really affect the organs. And she was really struggling to live a normal everyday life. And um, she was under the care of a physician, um, a great physician and everything like that. And I really just said, you know, Lauren, I think that we should try a plant-based diet. If you're open to it, I'm happy to teach you how to do it and implement it. And along with the plant-based diet and other lifestyle factors, um, she, you know, stress reduction, physical activity really came into play for her. And she was a very healthy person to begin with, but there was definitely some tweaks that we needed to make. And thankfully to this day, I can tell you this many years later, she, her um, lupus is in remission. She's had two beautiful children. Um, and she said that I asked her not too long ago, I said, when was the last time you had a flare? And she's like, I can't even remember. I don't even know. Um, so that is, of course that, I mean, my twin sister being, seeing your twin sister, your best friend like that, not be able to live life as she should. And the early 20s was really impactful for me. And I'm so glad to be able to see that essentially behind her. That is amazing. And just for people who aren't familiar, lupus can be absolutely devastating. Just really take away joy from your life, organ transplants. You know, it, it just mm -hmm. can be very horrific to have lupus. So to say that she can't even remember the last time she had a flare, I mean, that completely changed her life. When you first proposed it to her, was she reluctant? Was she doubtful? How did she react? Honestly, she was actually, I mean, she was willing to try anything at that point, but being her twin sister, we always kind of joked that she was my guinea pig anyways, and that anything that I was willing to recommend and thought was important for her, she was willing to try. So um, we have that good, a close of a relationship that she wasn't really reluctant. I think she was reluctant, like, okay, how am I going to do this? Because, you know, scrambled eggs were one of her favorite easy go-to meals and those types of things. Um, so I think maybe sure there was like, oh, how am I going to do this? but we definitely work through it together. And um, it's fun to be able to have your twin sister follow the same diet. So when you have family outings and stuff like that, you're not the only one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I, I, yeah. I'm kind of always jealous about people that have twin, you know, siblings anyway. Like, I think that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> but it's yeah. so cool that y'all can share in this and also share in the gift that it's given you so that you can both, you know, be part of that joy and that passion for promoting a plant-based diet. I love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, tell me why you chose to become a dietitian and how has your personal diet and lifestyle woven back into your profession? So I know that you said that you learned it because of your your, you know, research at your own research outside of learning to be a dietitian, but then once you made the transition, did it feed back in? Yeah. Yeah. It's, so my interest in nutrition actually really started as an athlete. Um, I was a college athlete and I was really interested in how nutrition could naturally improve my performance. Um, and, and I'm a big believer that everything is multifactorial and there's more than one pillar, but I wanted to see how could nutrition specifically impact that. So that's where it started for me. But when I was playing in college, unfortunately, there were many cancer diagnoses within my family. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. My grandfather was diagnosed with liver cancer. My grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, I had a godmother diagnosed with breast cancer, who's my mom's cousin. Um, and previously, my um, other grandmother passed away before I was born from lung cancer. So we have so many cancer diagnoses in the family. And I really started to have this question of how could nutrition alter these paths? How could it help them during their course of treatment? And how could it help them into survivorship? And this was actually when I was playing college softball and going to school, I was actually a business major. I have a degree in business and then went back to school to be a dietitian. And it was really at that turning point that I started having more of these questions and this deeper interest in nutrition. And it was my now husband who at the time was I really think you should be a dietitian. And I was like, of course, I was like, oh, it's way too late for that. I'm early 20s, right? Just about to graduate college. And and he was really influential in me going back to school and seeking out the degree to become a dietitian. And while I was in school to be a dietitian, I told all of my professors and advisors, I want to be an oncology dietitian because that was really where my interest was. And 
in dietetic school, you have about a one hour lecture on oncology nutrition. It's very brief. It's very little. And I wanted to learn everything that I could. So I asked for, you know, any oncology dietitian that was willing to let me shadow them or ask them questions. I, that was where I was finding the information. And then I got an internship with a well-known um, cancer center, national cancer center that became an intern there um, and then was hired on full-time afterwards. And so I kind of landed this dream oncology job, right, where exactly what I wanted to be doing. And then this is where like that plant-based story started to come into play, where I was experiencing fertility, I was researching it more on, on the side and started to implement it with my patients and then implemented it for myself. And one of the things seeing how impactful it was for my patients and helping them to reduce their side effects, improve their quality of life during such a really difficult time in their life was something that was really exciting for me. And so how it impacts my everyday light diet and lifestyle. And I always tell my clients is that it's actually really helpful for me because it's that constant reminder, right? We're all human. I would never tell anybody that I have a perfect diet because I don't, right? But that constant reminder of working with other people and supporting each other in the whole process is really powerfully impacted in my life and how I continue forward as well. Ugh, I love that. That's so beautiful. Let's talk about a tough subject. And we, before we even started recording, we were thinking about the last time we actually saw each other in person, which was, yeah. it was May, right? May of 2022, Correct. right? Yeah. Last year. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> it's not yep. even been a whole year yet. Yeah. And so, and you had just discovered something that has changed your life. So tell me about your cancer diagnosis and how it has impacted you. Yeah, Ooh, that is quite a loaded question, but I've had a lot of learnings in the last, um, it's been about nine months since that diagnosis. So really, I believe that my job as an oncology dietitian has actually partly saved my life and had early detection because I knew that I wasn't too young to have breast cancer. That was my diagnosis. Um, I had worked with many young breast cancer survivors before. And what happened is I was only 10 days out of breastfeeding my second child. And we found a lump at my annual exam. And we didn't think too much of it because I was only 10 days finished breastfeeding and how much the breast changed with breastfeeding. And so we didn't really do much about it. And I say me, me and my physician. And I went home and I think because of the role that I am in, I kept feeling that lump. I made sure I knew what she was feeling. The physician came home and monitored it. I had a previous lump between my pregnancies that had gone away between a cycle or after a cycle. So I kind of knew I was looking for, okay, any changes? Does it go away? Didn't go away. And the only way that I can describe it is every time that I felt that lump, I felt really anxious. And um, I was actually preparing for this conference that I met you at, and I was speaking on breast cancer nutrition. And while I was preparing some of my slides and looking through some of the research, it was talking about breast cancer after pregnancy and breastfeeding. And although it's rare, you know, this, it popped up and it, really, to me, felt like a sign. I need to really investigate this a little bit more. So I messaged my physician and um, my mom is a breast cancer survivor and was also the same physician for my mom. So she knows the family history quite well. And so that prompted, okay, let's get an ultrasound right away. And I really wanted peace of mind before I came to this, you know, this conference where I was speaking on breast cancer nutrition. And um, that ultrasound, while I was in the ultrasound, I, um, I knew that something wasn't right just based on reading um, the faces of the technicians. And um, all of a sudden, you know, ultrasound led to mammogram, led to biopsy all within a few hours of each other. And um, the radiologist did say that day, she's like, if I think I believe I know what I'm looking at and if I am, it's, it's breast cancer, but we need to wait to confirm with the biopsy. Um, so two days later, um, they called and did confirm that I did um, have breast cancer. And it was a whirlwind of emotions, as you could imagine. A lot of fear, probably anger, frustration, um, and then so much in the beginning of the whole process, there's so much unknown. And that is really scary. 
And I've said oftentimes that I believe my job as an oncology dietitian and working in cancer as a medical professional has been a blessing and kind of a curse in the whole thing, right? Mostly a blessing because I really think that's what brought me in and to ask more questions, to advocate like something doesn't feel right. We need to take a closer look. The curse is that I've seen so many different scenarios play out from there. And that's where that unknown leads to so much fear. Um, so then I went to, to the conference where you and I met the day after, and my whole family was telling me, like, you don't have to go and do this. You do not have to leave. Because I was leaving my family for a weekend, and I was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And I thought, you know, I need to do this. I need to do this for me. There's nothing that I can do different between my Friday night flight and my Sunday evening flight back home. And so I went, and I'm so glad that I did, because that conference was incredible. And it really helped put certain things into perspective for me. And then when I came home, that's when I, the whole gamut of appointments started the meeting with the surgeon and um, right away, they recommended a double mastectomy where I was like, kind of taken aback because I didn't necessarily, I had it in my mind that maybe I was going to go in for a lumpectomy and that was going to kind of be it. And cause that was sort of my mom's story. And she was like, no, we we definitely need to have a mastectomy. The, the lump is too close to the nipple. And um, so actually she did recommend a single mastectomy at first. Um, and at the time, the diagnosis was DCIS, um, where it meaning that the breast cancer was still contained to the milk duct. Um, and so that's a really early stage, very good. But she was very concerned that it was not just DCIS the way that it was presenting. And so I had another biopsy done, which went on to confirm DCIS. And so the next step was decision on surgery um, and was what surgery did I want to opt for? In that meantime, I had genetic testing. Um, because of my age, I was 33 when I was diagnosed, my age automatically qualified for genetic testing, which we had never done before, even despite the family history on both sides of my family of breast cancer. Um, and it did confirm that I actually do have a genetic mutation and my mother is the carrier of it. And um, to me, I was actually really kind of surprised, even though I knew that there was such a generational impact of cancer, because only 5 to 10% of cancer cases are related to a genetic component. And it's multifactorial. Just because somebody has a genetic mutation doesn't mean that they're going to get cancer. Um, to me, it was surprising. Um, it was maybe helpful to hear that there was maybe this other driving factor as well. Um, and so that changed from the recommendation from a single mastectomy to a double mastectomy because of the genetic mutation and the risk of recurrence in the other breast. Um, and so I opted for uh, a double mastectomy and I had something called a D-flap reconstruction, which actually uses your own tissues to reconstruct the breast instead of using implant procedure. Um, and it's a very intense, it's a 10 hour long procedure with a very long recovery. Um, but I felt like that was the best choice for me mentally and emotionally moving forward. Um, and I'm really glad that I had that surgery, you know, I'm nine months out of it now. I healed really, really well from it. Um, but during that surgery, we did a surgical pathology and the, what was originally a DCIS diagnosis turned into actually an invasive component, which means that the breast cancer had left the mammary gland the milk duct. And from that standpoint, more testing needs to happen and go forward. And what um, was ended up being confirmed from there um, is that I had a trip, what's called triple positive breast cancer. And that um, for those who may not be super familiar with it, there's three different components that they look at in breast cancer um, and what might drive or fuel that breast cancer. And that's estrogen, progesterone or a protein called HER2. Um, so by being triple positive, it means that the breast cancer had all of those receptors on the cancer. The very positive thing about that is that there are lots of treatment options for a triple positive breast cancer. What that also meant for me is that chemotherapy um, was recommended. So after about six weeks after surgery, um, I started chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Um, I had weekly chemotherapy for 12 weeks. And then after the 12 weeks ended around Thanksgiving time, um, I, I started 
every three week immunotherapy, which happens for a full year. So I'm actually currently still in the middle of immunotherapy. Um, I have infusions every three weeks. Um, but I am so thankful to be able to say that I tolerated chemotherapy really quite well. I think that's where the blessing of my work really came in. Not to say that there weren't hardships, um, but I had so many tools and resources to be able to help me through it. Um, I knew how to manage nausea. I knew how to manage bowel issues, those types of things. And I could teach my husband how to help me and support me in those processes. And I think that was really impactful and part of some of my success to go through chemotherapy. And I'm so very thankful for that. Um, and you can see as well, but I saved my hair. Um, I used a process yeah. called cold capping. Um, and it's been a cold capping has been around for quite a while more in like Europe and other countries. And it's more making its way here to the US. But essentially, you're using you are using a really, really cold ice pack on the top of your head during the infusion. And it um, essentially the idea and the concept behind it is that it um, restricts the blood vessels at the very tip of the hair follicle, not allowing chemotherapy to be delivered to the end and the tips of the hair follicle, allowing you to be able to keep your hair. Um, I had very great success with cold capping. As you can see, I'm four months out of chemo at the time of this recording, and I lost probably 10 to 15 percent of my hair. Um which is a very, very good outcome with the cold capping system that I used. Most people going into the treatment that I had, 50% of patients saved at least 50% of their hair or more. So I was definitely a very, very positive outlook from the, the cold capping. And I'm very thankful for that. It was very challenging because it was very uncomfortable. Um, I was also icing my fingers and toes during treatment because the type of treatment I was on also um, can increase the risk for peripheral neuropathy or the tingling and numbing in your fingers and toes. Um, so I was like, I was free. It was so cold, right? Because I'm icing my fingers, my toes, and my head for about two, two and a half hours. Um, it was very uncomfortable. But during the time, I just tried to remind myself like the reason why I was doing it. Um, and now when I go to immunotherapy and still have like the infusions, I'm so grateful that I'm not cold capping anymore because it was a lot of work. But, you know, I can really say four months later that it was worth it because I got my first haircut since June the other day. And it was rather exciting to be able to be able to have a haircut um, this close to chemotherapy. Wow, that's amazing. Yes, your hair looks beautiful. So that Thank was going to be one of my questions if you did something. I have seen a video, like somebody posted a reel of them doing their last cold capping for their last infusion. It looked so intense. But I'm just amazed at how proactive you are, that you're just, you know, you've taken this diagnosis, it's it's devastating, it's so emotionally heavy, there's probably so many emotions, but you're like, okay, I'm just going to do these things, I'm going to, you know, try these different things to improve my outcomes, to to match my goals and my well-being. Um, and so I definitely want to talk more about that, including some other yeah. things that you have done to help manage the side effects of chemo. But before we get to that, I do want to talk a little bit more about an emotional piece and something that I have spoken to a guest before on the podcast, which is how particularly difficult it can be to get a chronic condition diagnosis, especially when you're in the position that you're in. Like, you're a plant-based professional and you work with other people that have been diagnosed with chronic conditions. So tell me about your thoughts and your mindset around that. How has it affected you? How has it influenced you? Did it cause you ever to have doubts? This is a great question. And this has been a big, huge piece of my emotional part of the journey. And I always said with my family history, and the work that I do, I always told myself, if I were ever to sit in that chair and have that diagnosis, I want to be able to look back and say, I did what I could, right? And so at the moment of my diagnosis, I thought about that. I thought about what I told myself. And I thought, can I say I did what I could? And I believe that I did. I did what I could. And now that is not to say I was perfect because I wasn't right. I was 10 days out of breastfeeding an infant, right? 
sleepless nights, like you're just I running a business, running, I have an older child, right? There was not perfection in my diet or lifestyle. There were definitely things that could have been improved. But in the grand scheme of things, did I do what I could? Yes, I did what I could. And I fully believe that my diet and lifestyle actually really made this incredible difference for me. Maybe it allowed us to have this incredibly early detection, right? And then it was this realization because there were so many people that told me, what? You have breast cancer? You are one of the healthiest people I know, right? And sometimes that was really hard to hear because you know how unhealthy there are lifestyles out there. And you, of course, you ask the question, why me? And why not that person, right? I always wondered why my grandmother passed away at the age of 52. She was a smoker. She passed away from lung cancer. But why did my grandmother pass away from lung cancer at 52, where this person is 80 and still smoking, right? And so there's a lot of questions of unfairness and why me, but I also, and I think it's okay to ask those questions, but at the same time, not sit in them for too long. Because to me, it was this realization of like, I can't change this. This is what happened. What am I going to do next? And that is really where the things that you mentioned in terms of that, I really am doing everything I can to take back my power to take back my control, right? There are so many things in life, but also in cancer and chronic disease that are out of your control, right? But what can I do to help put some of that control back and give it to me? That's where the cold capping came in, right? That I knew going in, I could still very well lose all of my hair. And we had conversations with our daughters beforehand, like mommy may lose all of her hair. She may not, like she may look different, right? So we... We took those things into consideration, but it was a, the nutrition piece of it, the cold capping, the fasting that I think we'll talk about. These were all ways to help empower myself and take back some of the control when it, everything else feels so out of control. Um, so that's really kind of where the mindset piece has been. I have had imposter syndrome of, you know, here I'm promoting a plant-based diet and I'm still a plant-based person with a healthy lifestyle and I still get cancer. But even beforehand, I knew that you could do everything right and you can still get cancer or chronic disease. But again, I come back to the, I did what I could. And that gives me empowerment to move forward and that I still have some control and I'm going to do everything I can in my control to live a healthy life, prevent its recurrence and just move forward from there. And so it was really this realization of, gosh, I did everything right. How did I get cancer to the things that I did right are going to be the things that helped me get through this. And I think they very much did. That is so powerful. And there's just so many positives that I see in your story and your approach to all of this and, and how you think about it. But that's why I go back so much. And I'm very careful. I, I don't, I'm not going to say I'm perfect, but I'm very careful when I talk about conditions and illnesses that it all comes down to risk. And there's so many things that we can do to decrease our risk, but there's never zero risk because being alive is essentially a risky thing. You know? yep. So 100%. like you just can't eliminate all risk. And yep. so I think, but, but it's also hard too, because you don't have like another version of you living in this setting and this setting to see the difference. It could have been completely different. It could have been even a more difficult thing. Um, and so I think you're right because we can and because we're willing to we should do the best we can and then we just cross each bridge when we get there adapt adapt tweak things in order to match our goals for our well-being and our longevity and we just do the best we can because we're human and being human is essentially being exposed to risk day in and day out exactly and that's what i've always said too is that it's it's really just risk reduction there's no guarantee in anything like as much as we would love to have guarantee that's just not going to happen and it never will so and some of that risk reduction and the things that i did was really to like 
my kids were super helpful. I've said in this whole process that parenting has been kind of one of the most difficult things through cancer, right? You know, parenting itself is hard and then throw a cancer diagnosis on it and it becomes like even harder. But at the same time, like they have been, my kids have been the thing that keeps me going, right? I'm going to be willing to do these things for the betterment of my life because it's the betterment of their life. And that's, I think that's where some of the motivation comes from too. Yeah. And then for them to witness you doing one of the hardest things you've ever had to do in your life and get through it and seeing the ups and downs and seeing how you're able to approach these different changes in your emotions. I mean, what great learning for them too to know that life isn't perfect and things are going to happen. And this is this is how we flow like water through these issues. And you said earlier that, you know, you get imposter syndrome. I think that happens to all of us for sure. But I'm also wondering how what you think about your cancer diagnosis and the empathy it gives you for your clients, because obviously you had empathy because you had it in your family, but now you have felt what it is to have a cancer diagnosis, to go through all that uncertainty, all that anxiety, to actually have the physical symptoms. There's no replacement. So I'm just wondering if you've heard from your clients, how they have they felt even more comfortable with you because they know for sure that you understand. Yes, 100%. And I think uh, of there's so many different silver linings in this cancer diagnosis. I've, I've said I've learned so much in this entire process, and I'm still learning. There's so much more to learn. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot of things at a really young age that either some people don't learn until much later or maybe never learn in their life. And one of the, so those blessings are the silver lining. I've, I've said, man, I really wish that there was a way I could have learned those things without a cancer diagnosis, without a, like a life-threatening condition. <laughs> However, when it comes to the work that I do, it really does and has taken my work to a different level of being to able to empathize with my clients. And, you know, some of my current clients that are going through chemo, they've just said, it's really nice to talk to somebody who understands and has been there too. And I always say that my journey is not the exact same of somebody else's. All of our cancer journeys are very different. Um, But those feelings, I do think there are some things that if someone's not a cancer survivor, they just can't understand, right? And I've said that about my husband. He's like, I can't understand what you're going through and vice versa. I can't understand what he's going through. I can't understand what it's like to watch your spouse and best friend go through this, right? And I've told him before, I would rather be the one in the chair than him because I would probably be even more of a mess on the other end. So that that empathy is something that is so critically important. And I think I've learned a lot about the difference between sympathy and empathy during this entire process and how like you don't need to fix something for someone just need to be there for them. Just sit there with them. There's a really great um, cartoon image of a Brene Brown explanation of sympathy and empathy that I encourage anybody to just Google like Brene Brown sympathy and empathy. And it's really great. And um, so I've learned a lot of that and it has really transformed my work in a way that I never thought it would. And it probably never could have unless I'd gone through this. Um, So I'm excited for what it brings to my work so that I can just help people in a deeper way than I ever imagined. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can just feel it. I can just feel your heart so open, you know, and and it, yeah, it sucks. It sucks to have to go yeah. through something so difficult in order to to get some of these rewards from it. But I think if we were to have it any other way, it wouldn't, it just wouldn't land the same way. You know, it's kind of like when you read a textbook and you're like, okay, I'm going to memorize this stuff, but then you actually experience it and see it in your practice. And then you learn it, you actually feel it in your bones, you can feel it. And that's how life is, is unfortunately, we got to go through all those tough things. Yep. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about fasting because it's something I'm particularly interested in. And I had seen you mention in one of your posts or something, and I was like, oh, I'm wondering if she tried fasting during her chemotherapy infusions mm -hmm. because I know there's been some research on it. So tell me, how did you learn about it? How did you incorporate it into your uh, cancer treatment protocol? And what has your experience been with it? And then also I'm interested to know, if you've just incorporated into your lifestyle in general, like any intermittent sure. fasting or time-restricted eating. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question. And a, a lot, I get a lot of questions about fasting and so forth. And um, of course, you know, I always like to say that the fasting protocol for chemotherapy um, is going to range by the individual and is really necessary to be under medical supervision, um, either with an oncologist and or oncology dietitian. And I think that's super important to say because even as an oncology dietitian, so I'm treated at a cancer center that I previously worked as the um, oncology dietitian. So I know my, my oncologist was my past colleague, right? So he knows the work that I do and so forth, but I, it was still important for me to run by him what I was doing. So I always tell people it's very important to have a conversation with your oncologist, with your medical team about what you're doing, because it may not be appropriate for all individuals because there are risks of fasting and it can be done in a detrimental and harmful way. And we want it to be done in a way that can actually support rather than harm. So I always want people to know that it's not appropriate for everybody. Um, I'm thankful for the research that I had coming into it and knowing it and also knowing that I was a good candidate for it and um, because of my experience and expertise. So with that being said, um, I had worked with patients prior to my own diagnosis and working them through fasting with chemotherapy. Uh, particularly if it was of interest of them. Um, and there is a fair amount of research and there's more growing and growing research. But essentially what the concept of fasting for chemotherapy is, is that there's a level or a degree of fasting prior to receiving the start of chemotherapy and um, following chemotherapy. And there are, in the research, there's several different protocols. Um, there's been lots of different protocols tested between the various number of hours of fasting prior to that chemotherapy start and for the number of hours afterwards. So generally what we're seeing in the research and the different protocols is anywhere from um, 
24 to 72 hours prior to receiving chemotherapy and for 24 hours after receiving chemotherapy, there may be this fast. And what that fast looks like can vary in the different protocols as well. Um, some have, let's say, less than 250 calories a day where they're consuming maybe vegetable broth, um, maybe some juices if, they, if they're keeping it under a low caloric load. So really, I turned to the, the research about, okay, what am I going to do? And what was really interesting about my fasting and my chemotherapy is I received chemotherapy weekly. So as you can imagine, if I were to have fasted for 72 hours each week, it would have been absolutely unsustainable, right? And so that's where that's really important to consider is like, okay, the research says this, but there wasn't much research on fasting weekly with my particular treatment. So I really wanted to kind of, I went into it saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to adjust as needed if necessary, and I'm just going to see how it goes. Right. Um, so I ended up fasting for a period prior to chemotherapy. Um, and I started by including some juices um, and then ended up getting rid of that at some time. And then I would look at the clock literally. So it was mostly just water all throughout the day. Um, and then I would look at the clock as soon as that IV pole and the IV pump beeped of when the chemo was done. I looked at the clock and knew that in 24 hours, that's when I was going to be having my next meal. Um, and it was hard. It was really hard. And the first part of it was... Um, the first couple cycles were easier and then it got harder as the cycles went on because it was every single week. But there was a point in there and only a couple cycles in that I had lost too much weight too quickly. And too rapid of weight loss during chemotherapy is not a good thing. We're losing lean body mass. It can increase the risk for malnutrition. Um, so it was, thankfully, I had this, you know, the sense to be able to say, Allison, this is too quickly. This is not sustainable for another eight cycles. Um, so I adjusted to have a shorter fast. Um, and the concept between fasting and chemotherapy is that when you have this fasting period, to simplify it, is really that essentially the healthy cells within our body go into protection mode. Okay. It's not getting fuel, it's not getting food. So it goes into these protections mode. Cancer cells don't have this mode, they only have the mode of like, grow, divide, grow, spread. We don't care what you do. Just keep growing. Okay. So the idea and the concept of it is if we're in this fasting mode, then chemotherapy is delivered during this fasting mode. The cancer cells will uptake the chemotherapy more effectively, more efficiently, um, increasing the effectiveness of chemotherapy against cancer cells while protecting the healthy cells. So in the research, we're seeing improved um, reduction in side effects with the chemo with fasting for chemotherapy and the improved efficacy of the chemotherapy during this fasting period. Um, so that's what I did. And I was always looked forward to breaking the fast the next day. And I usually broke it with a tofu scramble with a bunch of veggies in it. Um, and that was like, probably my go-to way to break my fast. And when it got really tough, um, I actually turned back to the research and like reread the research to like remind myself why I was doing it and why it was important because I was still feeding a family while I, you know, I have two little kids. I, I still need to prepare meals and so forth. So it was hard. I couldn't just like, ex like exclude myself from society for a couple days to make it a little bit easier. Um, but I do believe that it would, that is something that really played a role in reducing my side effects from chemotherapy. I had very little nausea. Um, I was able, and the thing about weekly chemo is like, you don't necessarily get as big of a dose because you're having it weekly, but you just don't have a lot of time to recover. Um, so I found that it was yeah. really impactful for me and I did it for every cycle. So I don't know what it was like without it. I was curious to sit, like test it a little bit to be like what it would be like if I didn't fast because I wanted to kind of be my own guinea pig. But at the same time, I didn't want to risk it because I felt relatively well afterwards and like I don't want to risk that it's not worth it. Um, so that's how fasting landed for me during chemotherapy. Um, and I also now as I think about it into like this part of my life, I do use a form of, you know, 
I guess you could say time restricted eating or fasting, but it's really um, from night to morning, right? And um, we see in the research, especially in breast cancer research, that women that are breast cancer survivors that incorporate at least a 13 hour fasting window between the last time they eat at night to the first time they eat in the morning, particular study found a 36% risk reduction in recurrence rates. Um, so to me, I personally really strive for like 12 up to a 14 hour fasting window in the middle, you know, from last time of the day, but I also don't sweat it, right? Like if I wake up in the morning and I'm extremely hungry or irritable or could tell that I need to eat, then I eat. I don't just be like, oh my gosh, I have to wait two more hours. I don't do that approach. Um, I really, and really what it has done for me is that it has really just changed how our evenings look. We used to eat a little bit later in the evening because my husband doesn't get home from work until about 6.45 at night. And we were waiting because I really value the importance of family meals and sitting down at the table um, all together. But it was just getting far too late, especially for two little kids. So now me and my girls eat at 5.30, right? We were able to move that window up and usually some, you know, because sometimes little kids just take a long time to eat, which is totally acceptable. Once dad walks in the door, you know, they might still be eating and then we can still have that family meal. But because of his work schedule, then we just have it more at lunchtime if he's home and so forth. So we just change the way we approach things to incorporate our family meal at different times and eat a little bit earlier, which is good for me and it's good for the girls too. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. And I love how you were able to be flexible and tweak things for you and the way that, that it worked. Cause you're right. If you're having to fast like three or four days every week, that's too much fasting, not enough feeding, <laughs> not good mm -hmm. for you. So essentially yeah. you were fasting for 24 hours after your chemo finished, but mm -hmm. were you shooting for about 24 hours before your infusion too? So fasting for about 48 hours a week? Yeah, it ended up being longer than that only because like I would like look at what time is chemo supposed to start tomorrow and then just based on how chemo starts and so forth. I'd say I'd averaged about 56 hours each week. Yeah, that's a long fasting window. There was a couple in the beginning time. Yeah. In the beginning, the first few cycles, it got closer to 65 and that's where it was too unsustainable. Um, and that's yeah. what I really looked at, like my weight and everything like that. And when I did make that adjustment, it was much more sustainable and my weight stabilized. So that was a really good thing. Yeah. Well, that's really awesome about not having much nausea. So I always think if I ever have to get chemo, that's like the thing I dread the most because I cannot stand being nauseated. Mm -hmm. So I've already decided if that ever happens to me, I'm definitely going to yeah. try the fasting because yeah. to me, it would yeah. be worth it just to not have nausea. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't, I never had to take any of the nausea medications that like they send home with. So I, I don't know if that was the benefit. And also we do see for, um, for example, that women, if they had, um, if they had children um, and they were nauseated during pregnancy, they were more likely to be nauseated doing, during chemotherapy. There's a similar mechanism there, they believe. So um, I did have some nausea during pregnancy, but it wasn't, it wasn't super intense. So it was, it's just interesting to see it kind of play out from that standpoint too. Yeah, super interesting. All the genetic differences and body types and how we react to things. I'm curious if there's anything else that you've changed or tweaked in your diet and lifestyle since your diagnosis and treatment. Yeah, I, I I get this question a lot. Like, what are you doing differently? Like now that you had it, and I would say that I'm not doing a lot differently, other than the fact that I'm being very. I'm being more intentional about some of the things that I used to do. I'm being more intentional about doing them more regularly. Um, so for example, um, I'm a very good cruciferous vegetable eater, but you know, every day there's broccoli sprouts. Um, I am, uh, I'm also on a medication that can cause like hot flashes and all these types of things. And based on the research with hot flashes, and diet and so forth. I'm very intentional about every day making sure I have a tablespoon of flaxseed. I have a serving of soy every day. Um, so some of these things I'm very intentional about to continue to help with some of these side effects that are related to some of the medications um, that I'm on that help reduce recurrence. So I'd say those are things that I always did beforehand, but I'm not a much more intentional about doing them much more consistently now. And I think cancer was kind of a little bit of that wake up call to remind me of some of the things that are important to consistently do. And then the other thing is exercise. Um, and even if it's just walking, um, it's so easy, I think, as parents to be able to just 
push to the side the exercise because you're running around taking care of the kids. Um, and I'm much more intentional about I don't miss a day of my walk. And I, I do other exercises, but the walk is the minimum, right? If I get at least a 30 minute walk every day. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough that my husband is like, go, I got them. You, I got the kids, you go. But if that's the case, then I take them with me. And so we're much more intentional and consistent with those other lifestyle factors too. Walking is so good too, because it has such a positive impact on mental health and just kind of helps clear your mind. And especially if you walk outside, you get that connection to nature too. And sometimes you yeah. see your neighbors walking, you say hi to them, feel connected to them. So I love how walking kind of like ticks a lot of boxes when it comes to well-being. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part, because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to. And they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you wanna give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you wanna join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. Yeah, we we actually um, live walking distance from the school that our daughter goes to, and we walk most mornings. I live in Wisconsin, so in the dead of winter, we don't quite we don't walk quite that much. But even my daughter was saying today how much she enjoys walking to school with mom because it's when we get to chat and talk and she sometimes rides her bike sometimes rides her scooter and like we're getting out in nature um and i think it creates really healthy habits for them too and she was even talking this morning about how walking to school saves gas in the environment, right? Because I'm not driving the car, right? So like, it's so fun to watch their little minds connect all these different pieces for it as well. Oh, I love that. <laughs> all right, Allison, what do you wish more people knew? Ooh, I wish more people knew that nutrition can be an incredible complement traditional to traditional cancer therapies and really help improve side effects and quality of life 
just during treatment and after treatment, because that's not something that we see traditionally in the medical community right now and the cancer community. And so I wish that there was more emphasis on nutrition for patients that are going through treatment. I love that. It's your thing. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. what you do. So that's great. Yep. Do you have a morning routine or are your kids still too small to, <laughs> to make it so you don't really have your own routine? <laughs> oh, yes. This is a great question. My morning routine changes so frequently because of that. And like, you know, I have a two-year-old and we just kind of changed her nap windows and wake windows. Um, so I don't have a very specific one right now. Although I would say in the last like several months or weeks, you know, the, one of the first things that I do wake up and I do some um, prayer and focus, um, some meditation, but it's really short because as parents, you know, many people know you just don't have a lot of time. So I try to sneak that in before the kids wake up because otherwise it's not going to happen. Um, but then it's really, um, I get my daughter ready for school and we just, we love to walk to school. And that's right now our current morning routine. Um, and I think too, I think, I'd love to have this really extravagant morning routine, but I think it's also important to take into account what's realistic, right? I have two little kids you know, and so forth. And it's going to change constantly. So if I can just have that 15 minutes to myself, and I like to think about that is then I'm on offense rather than defense, right? If, yes. if you're waking up, we, you know, with the monitor waking, waking you up instead of you waking up before then playing defense, I think is a lot harder and I prefer to play offense. Um, so that's my goal in terms of morning routine is to wake up on the offense, have 10 to 15 minutes of time by myself, and then kind of jump into the day. I love that. Yeah. Any is better than none. And you're right. It's almost like you get that a little bit of head start to set your intention instead of just waking up and it just feels like pure chaos and like this race and rush to get everything done yes. and everybody's yes. frazzled. I just remember. And, and it does change. And that's why I mentioned if, you know, your mm -hmm. kids are still too young that you don't have that time because when your kids are young, you don't have that much time to yourself, you know, yep. but it changes. Mm -hmm. And as I interview people that have grown kids or kids that have left the house, then there's time for the luxurious, like two to three hour <laughs> morning routine. Oh, nice. It does change yeah. over time. Absolutely. Uh, I love it. Allison, you're so, just so beautiful. Thank you so much for taking this time, for being so generous and open and vulnerable with your story. I think that this is going to help so many people, not only to hear your story and your journey, but to feel the positivity and the love and the compassion that you have. So thank you. So can you please tell us where listeners can connect with you and tell us about what services you offer? Because it looks like you have some really comprehensive ways that you can work with people. Yeah, thank you so much. That means a lot for you to say those kind words. I really appreciate it. And I always say that, you know, if sharing my story can help just one person, that it's totally worth it. And the number of people that have told me that they got their mammogram or they had a colonoscopy or they went and got checked because they heard my story, like that means the world, right? Because early detection is so, so important. Um, and so with that being said, um, I'd love to connect with listeners. Um, best place to find me is actually my website. It's wholesomellc.com. Um, and also the social media platform that I'm most active on is Instagram. And then that's at wholesomellc.com. And when it comes to services, um, I have an online program that's really comprehensive in terms of plant-based nutrition. Um, and I really teach people, anybody that's interested in plant-based, plant forward. I always say people that come to work with me, some people are interested in being 100% plant-based and I'm super supportive of that. And I have people that come to me that don't want to be completely plant-based and I'm supportive of that as well. I do tell people that, you know, my motto is eat more plants, you know, as simple as that. So you don't have to be a, wanting to be a full vegan or vegetarian to, to work with me, but we're going to promote whole plant-based foods as much as possible. Those are the type of people that I work with. Often, um, I do have a large cancer population, but I do work with individuals that are just interested in plant-based nutrition overall to improve their overall wellness. And within that, I have an online course that comes with group coaching component, which I think is so important to have that community that is kind of walking a similar path. You know, I had someone ask me the other day who was from out of town. I live in a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She's like, are there a lot of like really plant forward options here? I was like, 
no, <laughs> no, there's not. It's growing, but it's getting better. So like if you can have a community around you when depending no matter where you live, but other people that are kind of experiencing a similar walk, it can be just so helpful from that standpoint. So that's where like the group coaching component and I do do individual coaching as well. Um, that's a perfect program for people that are going through cancer treatment that are really looking for somebody to be able to help walk alongside them, make those adjustments as needed and have that really one-on-one -on -one attention. Um, so that's great for the cancer treatment patients or people that are looking into survivorship that just do want more of that individual um, hand-holding, I guess you could say, in terms of helping to improve their diet and lifestyle. So yeah, those are the programs. And you can reach me at, at wholesomellc.com or on Instagram at wholesomellc as well. I love it. That's so great. I'm so glad that you do that. And definitely we'll put that into the show notes. So anybody listening, you'll have direct access to Allison. You can look at all the things that she offers and work with her if it feels like that's appropriate for you. Okay, last question. Leave us with your number one tip for people that are affected by cancer or chronic disease and are ready to make a diet and lifestyle change. Where can they start? My favorite recommendation is to add before you subtract. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes it becomes very overwhelming to think about the things that maybe we shouldn't have in our diet or that are recommended to eliminate from our diet, right? It becomes very overwhelming um, and can lead to maybe no change at all. But instead, if we can focus on adding more whole fruits, vegetables, whole grains into the diet and not worry so much about subtracting right away, people usually find that that those additions start crowding out the things that want to be subtracted anyway. So if you can really set your mindset on adding before you subtract, I think you can be incredibly successful in the short term and in the long term. I love it. Yes, I 100% agree with that. And it completely changes your perspective on a food. If you're thinking about, oh, it's going to be such a drag to eliminate this, eliminate that. And then you look at the rest of your food and you're just like, uh, you know, you're not even excited. But then instead you change it to how can I eat more of this and make it delicious? And now I'm excited to try these things. It changes your whole mindset and the way that you approach it. So I love that advice. Allison Tierney, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be on the show today, for sharing your story, for all the work that you do in the world. So so grateful for you. And I hope that you have a very fantastic day. Thank you so much for having me. I, it was an honor. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a fantastic day.